You're listening to Speaking of Racism, the podcast dedicated to frank, honest, and respectful discussions about race and racism in the U.S. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Pull up a chair and let's talk. Special thanks to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know featuring Jay Lang. On today's show, I want to introduce Will Smith. Welcome to the show, Will. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. You're a fellow podcaster. Yes. Yes. And tell us the name of your podcast. Uh, the name of my podcast is called Let's Talk. And okay. I guess it kind of evolved because I'm a PK, which is a preacher's kid. So at first mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about like all things church and how the church has affected PKs but then it kind of went different directions. So I talk about it like racism. I talk about marriage issues. So I want to change the description of it. And that it's going to just be a podcast where we're not a hodgepodge, but you know, we're just going to be, let's talk about certain issues. And I, That's interesting. So you are currently, if I read your bio correctly, you're currently a youth pastor. Yes, I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell us how long you've been in ministry. Oh, wow. I've been in ministry and I am 41 since I was 16 years old. So wow. um, for a very long time, uh, my original vocation, I wanted to be a surgeon. I love medicine and, and, you know, things like that, but things shifted. And so now I have my um, Master of Arts in Pastoral Counseling, but I am a youth pastor. I enjoy dealing with youth, especially inner city youth. They are voiceless and they need a champion and someone to speak up for them and to teach them how to fight. So this is where I am right now. And I will be doing my private practice as well in counseling. <laughs> That's awesome. So you have gotten involved in the discussion of racism and dismantling racism. So tell Mm -hmm. me about that. When did that begin for you? Wow. Um, I want to say it began for me, maybe my early teenage years, uh, maybe seventh, Mm -hmm. eighth grade. My father is born 1942. My father's from Jackson, Tennessee. So he came up from the South during the Great Migration as a child. My aunts and uncles, they always instilled in us back in the day when I was coming up the importance of learning our heritage and understanding who we are as a people and loving who we are. And in those times coming up in school, we had classes on African-American history. We had teachers who they made us learn our history um, because, of course, we all know like the civil rights movement, you know, what, a little bit over 55 plus years old. So we're not too far removed from that. And so I started then. Um, I always wanted to know about us and have like the sense of pride, not a pride that was like arrogant, but, you know, just happy to be black proud to be a black person. Yeah. You know? And so that's where it came from. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Gary, Indiana. It was a small steel town in Northwest Indiana. I want to say it had about three steel mills, U.S. Steel, Bethlehem, and Inland. Um, and back in the 90s, you know, we had friends coming right out of high school, getting jobs at the steel mill. People were coming up from the South doing a great migration and trying to get jobs at the steel mill. My uncle worked right out of high school. Like, no, he served in the Army for a few years and came from the Army. And that was his only job was the steel mill. Now the steel mills are closed. Industry there has closed down. And the city is pretty much in shambles. It's been in shambles for, ooh, for quite a while. I remember growing up in, like, I was born in 78. So I remember um, when crack cocaine hit the scene 
and it ravaged our community. I, I was in a, I would say lower income community. It wasn't like the projects, but it was a lower income community. But mm -hmm. when crack hit, it just, it tore everything up. Family members, the city just wasn't the same anymore. Wow. So it was, it was, it was really bad. Yeah, really bad. So I wouldn't even, I go, my parents still live there and I go back to visit um, every so often. So you and I are the same age. I'm actually a little bit older than you, but only by <laughs> probably a few months being 42. Okay. <laughs> and so it's interesting just listening to your story. And a lot of times when I talk to people, I compare like, where are we at in age and experience? You know, how did we grow up? What messages did we hear? Sure. My growing up experience was always um, predominantly black spaces. Um, mm -hmm. However, we had to recognize like when we were entering into white spaces, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, so Gary, Indiana is maybe 15 minutes away from a city called Merrillville, Indiana, and then Sherville and Valparaiso. So those were very, very segregated cities. Like, let's see, it was pretty much all white. So we had to know where we were at all times, you know, going to the mall, going to the movies, sharing, going to swimming pools. So we always had to be aware where we were. You know, we grew up in black spaces, but we always, my parents, my aunts, uncles, family members always made us aware of where we were going. And I, at that age, it was still a lot of pressure because, you know, you wanted to be a kid, but you mm -hmm. couldn't necessarily be a kid. You had to be a kid who was aware of the fact that someone who is white and may have some racist tendencies may come up to you and say something off the cuff. And, right. you know, it was up to you either to respond to it, ignore them and keep going. Um, and most times we didn't ignore it. You know, we would meet it head on. Um, but because in your youth, you'd think that if I meet it with, you know, with some type of aggression and intensity that they'll back down. And then that's not necessarily always the case. I remember one time my father and I, we were pumping gas and we were in a city called Valparaiso, Indiana. And a, a Caucasian gentleman just drove past and just told us, hey, Niggerville is back the other way, you know? Mm. And so like, it's things like that. You know, you can just be minding your business and someone who, you know, does not like black people for whatever reason will remind you, you know, where you are. So that's right. um, how we grew up. Mm. Now you are in the church and, mm -hmm. and you said you've been in the church all of your life being all a pastor's kid. And then now you are a pastor. Mm -hmm. You did a podcast episode called My Blackness, American Christianity at Imago Day. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who are listening right now, I recommend that you go and you check out the podcast and you listen to that episode. I thought that episode was incredibly powerful. Oh, um, thank you. And I'd love to just hear you talk a little bit about that episode and what brought that on? What made you feel compelled to share your story and to start that conversation? Well, um, what made, so listening to, I heard Michelle Higgins talk mm -hmm. on a podcast because I've become a podcast junkie. Uh, and so I've heard <laughs> <laughs> Michelle Higgins and I listened to your, your podcast. And then, um, you were talking with, I'm not sure if you were interviewing Jamar Tisby. Um, no. but, uh, we were, I wish. <laughs> you said you wish it was either you right? or Austin Channing Brown. Cause I have her book. Um, mm -hmm. but I, I heard it and for so long, I've always wanted to talk about the issue of being black and in the church and with Christianity and faith. But I was always a little apprehensive. Because people will tell you, you know, even African-American people will tell you, you know, you don't talk about that. God has saved you. 
you know, you're redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we don't see race, you know, we don't see color. And, you know, there are quote scriptures, you know, how Paul talks about there's no Jew, no Greek, no bond, no free in Christ. However, I still feel like in certain circles, especially when I go to predominantly white churches, that I am still like this rarity. I'm like this rare figure that comes in and they remind you in certain ways. I was at a church. I used to work for the YMCA. And the YMCA mm-hmm. is a um, organization, of course, we all know around the world that has, you know, they're like formed on Judeo-Christian principles. However, um, when, within the YMCA, they talk about diversity um, on the outside, but in the background, it is all white male-driven leadership. They have right. posters, you know, they have African-American people, indigenous brown, black and brown people. You see faces. They talk about how they celebrate diversity and, and it looks good and it's like this figurehead, but then it's not really celebrated and tolerated. And so I've always wanted to talk about it from a Christian perspective because I just never really understood if Jesus himself was Jewish or Hebrew, mm-hmm. then how can uh, Christians who espouse racist ideology, some Christians who espouse racist, racist ideologies, like organizations like the KKK, will say this is an all-white um, Christian nation when Christianity is not a race, it's it's a um, it's a religion. This is what we follow. Jesus, you know, of course we know the word Christ means anointed one. So, but they turn it into being this this race thing, and it's not a race. It's it's the followings of Christ. And you're following a Hebrew man. You're following a Jewish man. So within mm-hmm. the church, there was still this complicity that I saw when I spoke to and I would be a part of groups like Crosswalk um, when I was in college and, you know, Chi Alpha. And, you know, I was good enough to be a part of the group, but never good enough to be a part of the leadership, you know. Ooh, yeah. And, and so I felt I always felt some kind of way of like, how can we say we love this same God, but you won't accept me really for who I am? Like my blackness is still a threat to you. And so I just, I've, I really have had this inner struggle for years with the church. And it's almost made me want to walk away from Christianity. But I was afraid to tell people that, like, I was really the, right, ready to like, put it down and just say, you know what, I'm done with it because we are not really living the principles that Jesus Christ taught about. Mm-hmm. And if Jesus Christ, you know, taught about love and how not to just tolerate one another, but really love one another and try to and see beyond what they are, because we all know that this race, that racism is, is a, a social construct to keep us all divided. Right. But the church has been complicit, um, especially evangelical. It has been complicit in making sure that, that we remain separate. You know, I've gone to many Caucasian churches, large Caucasian churches. One guy, I remember, he asked me and he was, I guess he was being really genuine. And he said, brother, I said, yes, sir. He said, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. And I, my, my spidey senses start tingling. My antennas right. went up a little bit. He said, can uh-huh. I ask you a question? And I said, sure, go ahead. He was like, you know, I know about slavery and when it ended and all of these things and, you know, and racism and slavery was wrong. And he said, I know that we white people have had our foot on your necks for centuries. But don't you think somewhere deep inside you guys are the cause of it? <sighs> wow. And, yeah. And this is a Caucasian gentleman. We just finished worshiping. You know, I forget mm. what song we were singing together. And you asked me this question. And I guess, you know, he's asking with, with some sincerity in his voice. But then you asked me, do I think that we're the cause of the racism and white people having their foot on the necks of African-Americans? And I can see like steam coming from my ears and yeah. I just tapped him on the shoulder and I said, you know what, sir? I said, you have a great day because you're not ready to have a, a honest discussion with me 
at this moment. And I was so, yeah. I was furious and I yeah. just had to just walk to the car and it was pouring rain outside and the same gentleman held the umbrella for me and walked me to my car. But I was so upset with, I, yeah. was, I, I was really upset with, and I just didn't understand where that question was coming from. Right. I don't think they really it, want to know the truth sometimes. So do you run into this often, like these situations with this particular man? Yes, actually. Um, because mm-hmm. people think sometimes you may, they may be coming from like a genuine place and they may want to understand, you know, our plight. Uh, mm-hmm. Case in point, my wife and I, our oldest daughter is 19 years old. And so my wife met a lady by the name of Cynthia Marcy, who was a Caucasian lady, and she's very close to our family. Mm-hmm. And so I was remember, I remember one time, forget who was murdered by the police, but I had made a Facebook post about police brutality and racism. Mm-hmm. And Cynthia Cynthia Marcy called me and she just was crying. And she says, Will, I love God. I love you guys. You're like my my son and my daughter. I love your children. And she was like, well, what can I do to help? Mm-hmm. And I said, Cynthia, thank you for that very honest question. Uh, and I said, the first thing that you can do to help is never tell me or never tell an African-American person you understand where they're coming from. Yeah. That you understand how they feel. Because the truth be told, you'll never understand how they feel. And you'll really never understand what it's like to walk a mile in their shoes. No matter how much we tell you, no matter how many stories you see on TV, no matter how many stories that we sit down and we talk about, you'll never really get to really understand the depth of what it is like to be African-American in a country that still, to this day, loves our culture, but hates, I would say, yeah, hate is a strong word, but really dislikes African-American. We still live in a country Mm -hmm. where you know, law and order is one of those things, yeah. which is to, to me is a, like a dog whistle word of keeping, you know, black and brown people in their place. And right. to me, the, the only thing that re, the only thing that should be in their place is furniture. You know, that's the only thing, you know, and we live in the country where, you know, we're free, but we're not free. You know, we can we can live anywhere we want. We can drive what we want. We can eat what we want. But sometimes those things still come at a price. And that price sometimes is just a bit too high. I've had so many discussions. I'm tired of going to racial reconciliation conferences and then nothing happens afterwards. I get burnt out on those. I'm tired of those. Either we talk about it and we show how racism has divided every city and every state in this country, how this country was founded upon racism, but then there's really no real lamenting. There's really no no real repentance and no real rebuilding afterward. It's just like, hey, we came together. We came, as a matter of fact, we came according to your narrative. You didn't come to where we live. We had to come out to the suburbs where you are. And where Mm. sometimes, I'm going to be honest, like it's really uncomfortable to drive in the suburbs because you you don't know if you're going to make it out or not. Um, Mm. Because people are, white people are afraid to drive like in the inner city and like downtown certain places, but they don't really think about how it feels to drive out to the suburbs, to go to the grocery store, to go to Walmart, to do anything like that. Because we don't know if we're going to make it home. You know, we're followed. Um, we are profiled still to this day. And I'm not saying all white people do this, but these are just some of the things and what it's like to be an African-American in 2019, even now, mm. more so since Trump is in office. And, you know, they call it Trump's America, but just he's emboldened a certain base of people. And, you know, sometimes you just you just never, ever know when it's going to pop off. And you always have to be like I said earlier, you have to be aware of your surroundings and your environment. 
Tell me a little bit about these racial reconciliation conferences that you've attended, because <laughs> I'm fascinated. Maybe right. pick one or, you know, and, and tell us a little bit about, you know, what the common thread is. Like, say you've been to several. What is the common thread through it where you think they're really missing it? And what could you like if, if you sat there and you thought, you know what, if I ran this show, this is what I would do. Share a little of your thoughts on that, if you don't mind. Sure. I was recently at um, a racial reconciliation conference. It was called One STL, One St. Louis. And it was out in the suburbs, very affluent area. Um, the church was on a golf course, um, mm. massive church. And it was a lot of white people. The band was mixed. It was, I guess, now we call diversity black and white. When I think diverse. I'm thinking other cultures ethnicities. Um, But now um, for most people, diverse just means black and white. So it was black and white people in the band, a lot of white people in the audience. They had several speakers. The last two were African-American preachers. They were really um, very powerful. However, we met on like their turf Mm -hmm. um, under their narrative, under their rules. They showed how St. Louis, of course, was a slave state, how it's still racially divided, how they put the highways into St. Louis to divide, one of them called the Delmar Loop or the Delmar Divide, and how mm-hmm. it kept African-Americans on one side of St. Louis, and it kept Caucasians out near the South South City, South County of St. Louis. And so, you know, we had worship music, and it was great. We all worshiped together. We all sang about the Lord Jesus together. However, um, it was still tense and it always gets tense when we, when racism is being talked about because no one wants to be seen as a racist, you know, mm-hmm. and they think because, you know, if you don't carry a, a swastika or a burning cross, or if you don't say the N word, you're not racist. However, and you may not be, you may not be racist in that um, form of intensity. However, there's a privilege that you have that you will not um, admit that you benefit from. So right. being in, so being in that, in that conference, I was sitting there and I was really skeptical. You know, we had breakout sessions and we talked um, to different people. Matter of fact, an older gentleman came to me and he was really excited to sit with myself and another African American gentleman. And he was talking about how he bought Jesus to the blacks. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I said, uh, I said, Lord, why? Like, why do you continue <laughs> to place me in areas and atmospheres and environments <sighs> like this? And he right. was like, yes, I love the blacks. And I'm, I'm just cringing. <laughs> oh I'm cringing. Gosh. And I'm like, why does he pretend the blacks? <gasps> and I'm just, I'm trying to figure it out. So when he said the blacks, my, my wall went up, um, but I had to like, you know, break it down so I could hear him. But he just kept harping on the blacks and the blacks and how the blacks get baptized and the blacks, you know, they, the blacks need Jesus too. And I'm like, so do you think that African-Americans are like this heathenistic group of individuals who have no type of uh, couth, no type of decorum, no type of home train? Like we need Jesus in order to be seen as a good person in this world mm-hmm. through your lens. And the more he talked, it was just like the more things just got awkward and they just continued yeah. to get awkward until he said, you know what? I see a group of my friends. I'm going to go over there and finish eating my lunch. You know, God bless you guys. We love you. And then he just walked away. And uh-huh. I'm looking at the friend, my friend that I'm with, and I was like, wow. And he said, yeah, the blacks. And uh. so that's just how we felt like we were the blacks in the room having to listen to the majority of white people attempt to talk about 
and have a dis- or discussion on racism when I don't think they really understand the brevity right. of it. For me as an anti-racist who has been really deeply deconstructing for years and years now, and I've been dipping my toe in critical race theory and just looking at a lot of different things and taking in a lot of different ideas. One of the things that really makes me uncomfortable is the way that people throw this conversation together. And I mm. see it happening in almost an abuse of fashion mm-hmm. in the church. So these get-togethers and these gatherings, a part of me feels like white people need to get a bunch of white people together and have these conversations and educate them. Mm-hmm. I agree. But I feel like it is abusive. It's a largely abusive environment for African Americans who are taking part because You're coming and you are in a vulnerable position. Mm -hmm. You understand this history that so many of your white brothers and sisters around you are absolutely clueless about, painfully Mm -hmm. so, right? Mm -hmm. Ignorantly, arrogantly, all of these things. And then you're supposed to sit in a room and and smile and act like everything is okay. And for Mm -hmm. me, I feel like, you know, one, reconciliation isn't even the right word. It's conciliation because was mm. there ever was there ever a relationship to actually reconcile? No. Uh, true. Right? Very true. I don't know what the answer is within the institutional church, but I have some ideas. And if people are listening who are part of faith communities and they're part of churches and maybe part of leadership within churches and they're thinking about dipping their toe into the waters of racial reconciliation work, as the church calls it, what What would you advise them on in this regard? Like, what are some do's? What are some don'ts? What would you like to see completely changed? How do we do this work? You know, the reconciliation piece. No, there was no reconciliation because we're not in a relationship. And and to say that to me is is short-sighted and obtuse to say, you know, racial reconciliation because Mm -hmm. nothing was broken. It's always been damaged. It's always been I'm like us versus them. And I hate the term like, can we all get along or all lives oh. matter or Ugh. or that's not me. That was my grandparents. You know, those were my ancestors. That's not me. I don't see color. If I hear another one of those, I don't see colors. I'm going to scream. Um, right. I don't see color. All lives matter. You know, it can't be that bad. You're making stuff up. Oh, you're playing the race card. Black people could be racist too. Like all of these things. I'm like, oh yeah. Black people can't be racist. Like there's no way that we can be racist because we don't benefit from anything. You know, now we we can be stereotypical. We can be prejudiced, but I don't believe that we can be racist because we, there's not a system in place for us to benefit from it, you know? And then everyone will say, well, what about affirmative action? And you all get the most food stamps and, you know, all like these things, like, which make no Mm -hmm. sense. And most of the arguments are so illogical. Like, are you listening to yourself? But you know what? mm -hmm. They're all the same. And that was one thing. I mean, it was amazing. Like for me, I I fancied myself an anti-racist for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Even when I was spouting, you know, colorblind racism and these these ideas, and I held a lot of ideas that now I look at and go, whoa, those mm-hmm. were straight up racist, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and and it took me really taking a lot of stock 
and time and, and processing and listening and learning and, and just not speaking to realize, wait a second, I thought that, I thought that too, I thought that. And I started to put it together and realize that all of these thoughts I thought I had just brilliantly come up with on my own were in fact a narrative that I had been fed along with all of these other people. Because mm -hmm. everything that you've said is everything I hear. It's everything that I've been said, you know, like people will say to me and, and you start putting this together and you go, Hmm, <laughs> there's, there's a narrative here. People, where mm -hmm. are you getting this from? Mm -hmm. Where do you get these ideas from? So not to cut you off there, but. No, you're fine. No, 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 no. You're fine. I'm enjoying this, uh, this interview very much. Uh, I call it like the whitewashing of history. Yeah. Like, I mean, think about it. Uh, Martin Luther King is one of the most quoted African-Americans amongst white people in the world. But yep. they forget that at one point in time, he was the, according to the FBI, he was the most dangerous man in America. Yep. That the same person who, because they, they whitewashed the, his I have a dream speech, you know, and it's like so rude and arrogant and it's so racist to take a speech and take it and and whitewash it so and dumb it down so to just totally eradicate his entire struggle, the whole civil rights movement. This man was jailed tw over twenty nine times, oh, but he's yeah. the most quoted person. Uh, Muhammad Ali, you know, but we all we we always see this cycle. Muhammad Ali, they didn't like him because he spoke out against the Vietnam War. Um, he was very right. um, outspoken young man. Now he's one of America's most beloved heroes. And I'll say this, just like Colin Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick mm -hmm. right now is almost public enemy or could be considered public enemy number one. Well, when he goes off of the scene, Colin Kaepernick will be remembered for his stance and his bravery. And he will be, oh yeah, he was the gentleman who knelt during the national anthem. They hate him right now, but when he goes off the scene, he'll be, you know, beloved. He'll, they'll love him because that is the, their way of changing the story, changing the narrative um, oh, to yeah. make it fit their agenda. Well, how twisted is it that you have somebody like Mike Pence shaming mm -hmm. members of Black Lives Matters mm -hmm. by using quotes from Dr. King. Like it doesn't yes. get more twisted than that. It does not. It does, and I don't understand it. I don't get it. But yeah. I believe it, it to me, it's just um, in Jamar Tisby's book, he talks about racism. And a lot of people have used this statement that racism doesn't go away. It just evolves. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's very it's very true. We talk about it all the time. And we're asking you ask the question, like, how can we dismantle this system? I don't think that we'll ever be able to dismantle the system of racism, um, just like the justice system. I believe the justice system, as it pertains to African-American young men and women, it is functioning the way that it was developed to function. Exactly. Um, I believe that even like the system of like racism, we'll think that we've conquered it because we they thought we conquered it when Barack Obama was voted in president. Like I lost so many white friends when at first we were we were fine when when it was just a race and he was giving you know the yes yes we can speeches you know it was fine because they didn't think that he had a chance a snowball's chance in hell to become the president of the United States and so we right. were friends. Then when Barack Obama becomes friends, like the majority of all my white friends left. Like they stopped calling me, we stopped hanging out, we stopped having barbecues, we stopped really. Oh yes. 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 <gasps> wow. <laughs> like he becomes president. Like I hear nothing from, it's just mute. Like nothing. We don't wow. hang out anymore. Gone. 
Those friends are gone. You hear me? Like zero. Haven't heard from them in years. That's amazing. Amazing. Wow. But I still want to be their friend, though. I thought that we were friends. You know, I thought huh. that we had relationship and, you know, my kids were coming to your kids' birthday parties and we were coming to your bonfires and we were eating food and all of these things. We were, we were wow. you know, meeting your family. Then he becomes president and no more. That was hmm. amazing. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. I moved my family into a predominantly black city and have been really? very intentional over the years to develop relationships and friendships with people from all different backgrounds. Hmm. And that has been a very intentional thing for me. But the amazing thing when I started doing this work, I would host these get your people events where I would invite white people <laughs> over. And I mean, it was always open, but uh -huh. it's like, let me spare my black friends the pain of going through this conversation here. So I would have these events and gather people who are interested in really digging into anti-racism work. What does that look like? What are the definitions of racism? How can you get involved? What steps can you take tangibly to start deconstructing your internalized white supremacy? You know, all of these things. And it was amazing because I live in Detroit and mm. these people that came to my gathering live like within 10 to 15 minutes from Detroit. And not one of the people who have come into these gatherings have had significant relationships with people of color. And they've said, like, how do you even make friendships? How do you meet people? How do you? And, and just that in itself was very eye opening to me for the amount of segregation that we live in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, so I'd, I'm not surprised to hear like Facebook friends are lost and that sort of thing. But to hear you say that people who you shared your life with, like, that's devastating. Yeah, it was, wow. it, was, it was crazy. And for you to say that, like, your friends asked, well, how do you build friendship? Like, this was one thing that you really have to understand about African-American people. We are very welcoming and we are very open people for the most mm -hmm. part. And so like, because like community and family is just one of those things like we just espouse. And so we're the ones who I think sometimes we're the ones that are looking to build these types of relationships or to build relationships, period. And when things go south, we're still standing there like, okay, Let's talk about it. Hmm. But then sometimes white people don't want to talk or they may say that they want to talk. But I think it's they want to talk from their point of view to get me to see that, you know, well, we're not all bad or we don't benefit from, you know, white privilege or I don't have some type of white supremacist ideology tucked away in my back pocket. And so then we have to hear it. They want us to hear it from their narrative, but never really want to hear it from our point of view, because if we give it to them from our point of view, then we're the crybaby. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, we're not the crybabies. It's just like, this is what we've lived and dealt with all of our life. And it becomes exhausting. Yeah. It becomes exhausting to constantly go to a place of employment and walk around with a smile on your face. So people, so white people could be feel comfortable. When I worked mm -hmm. for the YMCA, um, and we worked in a school called Cleveland School back home in Dayton, Ohio. I had to walk around with a smile on my face. And I always, and a white person brought this up to me. She says, Don't, do you realize that when you meet another white person, you introduce yourself as Will Smith? And I was like, no. Of course, you know, they correlate my name being, my name is William Smith, the, the actor's name. His first name is Willard. But of course, he shortened it oh, to Will. Uh -huh. And so then they be like, oh, Will Smith. And then they start doing the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air 
you know, the rap. In West Philadelphia, born and raised, and I laugh it <laughs> off. Or then they'll be like, well, how's Jada? You know, and all these. And, oh, I loved you in Men in Black. Oh, what about Wild Wild West? And so that makes them comfortable to talk to me. Right. You know, so I'm like, I'm 6'5", 260 pounds. And, you know, um, but I have to keep this smile on my face to make them comfortable. Because mm -hmm. I don't want them to think that I'm going to just attack them. And that's mm -hmm. exhausting. Every single day. Every day. It becomes exhausting. It's just a lot of work. And I just really wish that we can get to a place to where we can have honest dialogue. I mean, we really need more people like you, Jennifer, like to be really intentional, because I think if you're intentional, that means you have to hear. Um, you may be offended, but you have to like take that offense and maybe like take some of the sting out of it because they're not when people are talking about their experiences, black people talk about their experiences. You know, sometimes we get that 100 yard stare or we can be right. reliving. We can like relive a moment and where we thought we were going to lose our life or it like, you know, something traumatic happened to us. So it's not that we're spitting venom and poison. This is like, you know, it's exhausting to continue to share stories that you see every single day and then blame us because, you know, oh, well, he wasn't compliant, you know, because it's easy mm -hmm. to say he wasn't compliant if he asks an officer a question like, why are you pulling me over? Where when we mm -hmm. see, we see white people in videos all the time. I mean, they have all kinds of videos on YouTube and Facebook talking about how, you know, they check these cops and, you know, know your rights as a citizen. That's great. You know, a white person can do that all day long. Right. I, you know, and truth be told, I can't spout off like that because number one, I'll be seen as arrogant. Number two, I'll be directly disobeying in a direct order from a law enforcement officer. And then they'll smash out my window and drag me out the car, you know, and beat me while they have it on their, their body cam, you know, the vest and, and the cameras. So mm -hmm. like Will Smith said, he said, you know, police brutality now has gone, you know, is now just is not being changed because they have on these these body cameras. It's just being videotaped and nothing is happening. Nothing is happening at all. You have maybe what, one or two convictions? Nothing right. has happened. And so just sharing this narrative and sharing our stories with people like yourself who really want to be intentional, I believe that is like, to me, that is the biggest step in the best direction. If we're going to attempt to dismantle racism is be intentional. Sure. We're all different. We all have like, um, I'm not sure if you've been to any um, biases trainings at all. We had to sit through a couple of them, but we don't even talk about racism in, you know, in our bias training. We just talk about how we have more things in common that separate us, but hmm. we don't talk about racism. We just talk about biases. Like Donald Trump said, when people were in Charlottesville, there was very fine people on both sides. They were agitating. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I heard you. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. Like you ripped <laughs> the bandaid off. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like stuff like that. But to me, that's still arrogant and racist because oh, yeah. we have to go through these implicit biases trainings, but never discuss racism. Hmm, that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Because we don't discuss it. Mm -hmm. It's too touchy of a subject to discuss. So what would you see, like, going back to this idea of, like, if churches are going to take on these conversations, mm -hmm. how do they do it well? What would you advise? I would advise, number one, prayer, ask for wisdom, because we all know what the Bible says. Wisdom is the principal thing. And then all of that getting, get understanding and allow people to share their stories and you listen and do your best to not retreat to the land of white fragility. Mm. You know, sit there, like, let, allow them to tell their story. Let them get it off of their chest. Don't be threatened by what they're going to say. They want someone to listen and actually hear their stories. And let's not just have 
you know, a come to Jesus gathering and then do nothing else afterwards. Because that yeah. was my problem with the um, the conference that I went to. As soon as I left, I was like, well, this is great. This is wonderful. But what's next? Right. And was there what? anything next? No, there okay. never is. See, that's interesting because I was invited uh, at the beginning of the year to go and speak at a church Mm -hmm. to the women's group. And initially I was like, yeah, you know, I would be open to that. But then I wrestled with it a bit because I thought, you know, I don't want to take the place of a teacher who could come in. But what I told them is if I'm going to come and speak and granted, it's just to like a women's group. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to come and speak, I want five core people in the church who are aware of this and on board and dedicated to this work. Mm -hmm. And then I want them to have a plan in place along with me after. So I told Mm -hmm. them I want to do Austin Channing Brown's book. I'm still here. And I have her six week study as well. So what I would do is I would open it up to everybody. We're going to do a a book study and then we're going to do the six week course. And then from there, I want to see people actively start to engage this work. So for me, that was key. I'm like, I'm not coming in and I'm not ticking this off the box. We're talking about changing people's lives. We're talking about doing very deep, very important work. And the Mm -hmm. thing that occurs to me is you have a lot of churches who have absolutely no idea of the history the the reach of white supremacy. And so this book, Color of Compromise, is exciting to me. I haven't read it yet. That's going to be our book here for this next month. I read it twice. That's amazing. (laughs) But but I'm excited to dig into that because Mm -hmm. I also don't understand it. I haven't done the work reading it and exploring it. So I have a lot to learn. And on some level, I almost didn't want to touch it because Mm. I'm like, eventually I'll get to that. But but it's so essential and it's so important to discuss. So I like what you're saying about doing something. So you don't just you don't just have the event, spend the money, you know, have it on on the, the turf of whatever church is hosting it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the work is hard. The work is dirty. It's messy. It's mm-hmm. it's uncomfortable. And, you know, I can only imagine, you know, how you must feel doing the work and, you know, being intentional. And I'm not sure if you have friends or family who are looking at you like, what are you doing? Like, please. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, and, you know, for people who call themselves Christian and the church is supposed to be this place where we all love one another. But when I read The Color Compromise, that book opened my eyes. I was like, wow, you know, mm-hmm. every church, Southern Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, like all these churches were complicit and they didn't say they didn't speak out. They may have cringed and did not like racist ideologies, but they didn't speak out for fear of losing membership. Like I was blown away when he was talking about Billy Graham and how, you know, came to one of his crusades and was like, take the ropes down or I'm not coming out. But then never really spoke out against racism mm-hmm. and how that's, you know, we can't worship God and still be separated. You know, if he is the creator, if this God that we worship and we love and we sing to, how are we still divided by race? It makes no sense. How do we misuse a holy book to keep a group of people, you know, in, you know, even even when we talk about women, like we use the Bible to keep women in bondage. Let's not mm-hmm. even get on women's rights and what's going on now. <laughs> 
(laughs) That's a whole other podcast. Whole other podcast. (laughs) But I'm just like, I just have these questions. Like the Christian church has been complicit in so much, so much. And we do it in the name of God and it's ridiculous. I'm sorry. Right. Oh, no, no, no. But that, I mean, for me deconstructing over the last few years, I learned a lot about where my culture ended and Mm. where Jesus began and how Mm. much the two Mm. were so interwoven and confused. Mm. And so I think by and large, we have a culture of Christianity. So what you have is you have a lot of churches that are social clubs. And what do social clubs do? They reflect the culture that they're in. And so so I've even changed my perspective a lot. Like I used to think that it was so sad that churches were so divided. And yet now I see it as if that is a safe space for my African-American friends on Sunday, and they just want to go and worship with people who they don't have to worry about putting a smile on for, or they don't have to worry about how they might come across. Man, I get that. It breaks Mm -hmm. my heart, but I get that. Like you said, we've Mm -hmm. built social clubs and we've built huge churches that hold five and 10 and 30,000 people. We have cool lighting. We have fog machines. We have people, we got black folks singing on a worship team. You know, we even got black people playing in the band, you know, but still for a lot of people, they really think, okay, we are becoming a diverse church. We are becoming a church which is racially diverse and we're reconciling to our black brothers and sisters. And you're not. Right. And I applaud you. I really applaud you um, for coming and being intentional because not many people are willing to walk where you walk and are really willing to deconstruct and attempt to dismantle this system. Like I said, I don't want to be cynical, but I just Mm -hmm. really think that racism, I just really don't see it that system being broken down because it only evolves. You right. know, it went from, uh, what's the guy's name? Ronald Reagan. Was it Reagan's advisor or was it Nixon's? And just talking about, you know, you don't use the N word anymore. Um, you use other words like. It was um, Nixon. Was it right. Nixon? Yeah. And the so Southern strategy. Yes, that. Yeah. And so it, it always finds a way to evolve. So we're not going to red, we'll say redlining is wrong, but we'll still redline. You exactly. know, things like that. And so, like, how do you fight against something? How do you fight against this five-headed hydra? Like, I cut off one head, another head pops in its place. Mm-hmm. How do you fight against it? And it's just, yeah. it's almost impossible and exhausting. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I, I just actually recorded a podcast with Andre Henry the other day, and okay. he runs Hope and Hard Pills Community. And so he's doing a lot of work in reading and speaking with people who are in the movement, like nonviolent resistance and protest movement. And it was really cool talking to him Mm -hmm. because he spoke a lot about having hope versus Mm. having optimism. So he talked about the difference between hope and optimism because he's like, optimism requires that I look at what is around me and Mm -hmm. draw optimism from that. And I can't. It's not possible, but I can hope. And this is what I can hope for and hope in. And I may not see it in my generation, but Mm. what can I sow and what can I do and how can I move and how can I join with other people in this work? And I love that because it's important and because I think it matters, but it also gives hope as well, right? 
Right, it does. Um, he talks about the creativity needed for nonviolent revolution and the percentage of population needed to create change. And it's like the sweet spot of three and a half percent. And, you know, there are a lot of people doing a lot of imagining and a lot of thinking and a lot of moving in this. And I am excited by that. I feel like now that we're in this age of social media, while there are a lot of negatives, there can also be a lot of positives in that. Sure. So I, I'm not being Pollyanna-ish, hopefully, in this, but I see more and more people who are waking up to things and saying, I want to do something. What do I do? How do I, how do I get involved in this? Mm -hmm. And that's why I think your point about what do we do after the event? Mm -hmm. How do we get involved? I think that is so key in this. Mm -hmm. It is. And I, I agree. I really definitely agree. I just, you know, just walking away from just say, hey, we had a great guy. Gathering, and mm -hmm. then that's it. You know, we take because, you know, like with social media, like we take a lot of pictures and we post, but then that's it. You know, we're shaking hands, hugging, but that looks good on social media. But after we shake hands and hug, are we going to like, are you going to come across the tracks and see the plight that we're living in? And, and are you going to, you know, do the work? That is the, the hard part. You know, we can all gather. That's, that's nothing. Music, food. Oh man, that's a party. But mm -hmm. then afterwards, are we going to, you know, the work has to continue. And the, but that's the hard work, grassroots work, like ethic, like just really put in that time, that effort and being intentional. If you see something, say something. If you feel as if, you know, someone like have an ally, that is very important. I'm not sure if you saw videos on Facebook and on Instagram, the gentleman whose brother was shot, um, the one who the police thought his phone was a weapon. It's so amazing how phones turn into nine millimeters when it's in the hand of African-American person, but how he interrupted. Now, I was, I really didn't agree with how he interrupted the, the council meeting, but you know, he walks in there and he jumps up on the desk. I wouldn't have done that, but there were white people around them and it was like they were this force field because the cops did not push past the white people. And I'm like, what mm -hmm. in the world? Like, what is going on? Like, they did not push. It was like, okay, their whiteness was like this force field. Like, they were not going to push past them. Now, if it would have been all black, I think they would have pushed past and batons and bullets. But right. I was just amazed at how when he, st when he stood on that desk and those white people surrounded him the cops did not lay a hand on him and mm -hmm. then he was even able to walk out you know erect walk right out with them they would not allow the cops it's, they weren't even going to like fight the cops they just stood around and were an ally and i think mm -hmm. we need more allies that we need allies and i think we should not be afraid of what people are going to say i'm sure for you your feelings may have been hurt by family friends nah. you know, family and friends <laughs> who have said some things People haven't said things. It's what they stopped saying. It's how they oh, stopped wow. calling. It's how they stopped engaging. It's how they oh. stopped, right? Like, it's all the silence that has come from it. I definitely Ooh. have felt the effects of the, you know, doing the work and being outspoken mm -hmm. and vocal. And that's the cost, you know? Like, wow. sorry. Mm. But yeah. Wow. I've been ghosted. Oh, you've been ghosted? Right? Yeah, when they just stopped talking to you. Like, right. ghosted, yeah. So yeah, what's were... worse? I almost feel like ghosting is worse because if somebody says something to me, I will happily sit down with them and have a five hour conversation, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But it's that ghosting that's just like, oh, okay, I uh, guess you don't want to talk to me anymore, but, you know. Yeah, because it was that friendship, that bond, that intimacy that yeah. you know, we've known each other for years. But now that I have awakened and I'm seeing things from a different perspective, now you don't want to have anything to do with me. So and, and, and so it's easier to avoid you than it is to sit down and have a five-hour conversation. Oh, yeah. Because because they might get changed in that five-hour conversation. Who knows? Mm-hmm. They might be awakened. They might come to their senses and be like, oh, my God, Jen, you're right. Like, we've had it all wrong for centuries. How can I help? How can I get involved? <laughs> and that would be right. amazing. But instead, okay, okay, well, I won't call anymore. I'll lurk and stalk her Instagram and Facebook page. And right. everything she's doing on social media. <laughs> and I'll talk about it. I'll talk about it to other people and friends. Oh, uh-huh. but we're not going to have a conference. Oh, yeah, I, I get it. <laughs> Oh yeah. I get it. But sorry, yeah. so you were saying the um that you feel like allies are important. Mm-hmm. Yes. Having honest conversations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have any other thoughts? Um, allies important um having those conversations, being intentional, being I won't say fearless, but being courageous. Mm-hmm. Um being courageous, being willing to make mistakes. Yeah. Because because there, there will be times where, you know, you will assume you may, your implicit bias might kick in. And this is just a part of the process. It's human nature. We assume a lot of things. And so being willing to make those mistakes, own up to those mistakes, have the conversation and repair and, and move forward and not, not dwell there in the mistake. You know what I mean? Like, okay, you know, I'm doing the work. I'm, de- I'm deconstructing. I'm dismantling. I'm doing my part. And then I may say something off the cuff because I just don't know everything. I may say something that may not be culturally sensitive or it may be culturally insensitive. I, I really believe that like relationship is mm-hmm. key. If you're going to do the work, you need to be in the trenches with people that have the like mind, that are willing to work and who are willing to build that relationship. I would love to come back and talk more on the podcast with you. Yes. I enjoy talking. Yeah. Um, I, I believe I have something to say, but like this podcast is amazing. I'm not sure how many you have like, do you have like 10,000 listens so far? Yeah. Did you I know, each right? episode I'm getting between six and 700 listens. No way, really? Yeah, so I think that's not bad, right? That is amazing. And to think that I would have 600, 700 listens per episode when it's a podcast where we're talking about racism is pretty awesome because I wasn't sure anybody would want to listen, you know? Wow. Will Smith, thank you so much for being a guest on Speaking of Racism. I look forward to having you back many more times. Sure. Thank you so much. 